Thank you for downloading from Digital Mindfulness. This is episode 53. Welcome to the show, where I'm delighted to have as my guest this week, Baroness Susan Greenfield. Susan Greenfield is an author, broadcaster and research scientist at Oxford University, where she's focused her work on neurodegenerative diseases such as Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease and the neuroscience of consciousness. Greenfield was the director of the Royal Institution of Great Britain. But in this episode, we focus on her work of the impact of technology on the brain. In a list of awards and honours too long to mention now, this interview focuses on Greenfield's view of digital technologies such as video games and the internet, producing certain behaviours and impacting on child development. Please enjoy this fascinating interview with Baroness Greenfield. So Susan, thank you so much for being with us this afternoon. Um, I'm really thrilled to have you on the show and to be able to talk about your area of work. Thank you, it's my pleasure. So Susan, just for people that might not know anything about your work or who you are, could you give a little bit of a background on just how you came to be working on neuroscience and particularly on the impact of technology on the brain? Sure. Okay, so I'm a neuroscientist. Um, I've spent about oh, several decades uh, researching the brain in Oxford University, and um, for about 20 years I've taught all aspects of neuroscience to medical students. So I feel I'm quite across um, what we know about the brain at the moment and uh, the potential uh, for what we need to know and also the potential of the brain itself. And one of the most um, important aspects of brain function is its so-called plasticity. That is to say that our ability, compared to many other species, we do it superlatively to adapt to our environment. And that's why we occupy more ecological niches than any other species on the planet. Um, and because of this ability we have, this superlative ability um, to individualize our brains, to personalize our brains according to our personal individual experiences, um, it follows that um, any change in the environment may well result in um, unprecedented changes in how people are thinking and feeling. And I came across this um, more particularly as an important issue when I gave a talk in the House of Lords in 2009. Um, and when you do a debate in the Lords, uh, what you do is you actually um, concentrate on an aspect where you have um, a particular expertise or authority. And in this debate, which I think was on child pornography sites or something like that, given I'm not a lawyer and I certainly know very little about child pornography, um, the aspect I thought I'd focus on would be just saying what I've just said, that as in neuroscience, you know, that in general the brain will adapt to the environment and if the environment's changing, the brain will change. And I don't think any scientist would refute that. But that said, I think I was the first person to actually say it because it triggered a real amount of attention, some of it negative and hostile, some of it intrigued, um, but certainly sufficient to get me to delve more into it and to think and talk about it more. And then in the end, as a result of all this, I was approached by Random House, who said, would I write a book on it, which I did. And that was in 2014 that came out, Mind Change. And the reason I called it Mind Change 
um, was because there were parallels with climate change in terms of being unprecedented and controversial and global and above all multifaceted. You know, just as climate change, you can talk about um, water shortages and um, energy conservation and so on. So with mind change, I think you can. And I do talk loosely into four, three or four areas such as social networking, search engines and video games. And, and they each present different, different questions. And I think what one has to do is unpack all of them and, and think very carefully about what we want and what we're, what we're seeing. I think the comparison with climate change is an interesting one because certainly in the initial stages of people talking about linking climate change with human activity, there was an incredible amount of criticism. And I know that this is something that you face, particularly with your book on mind change. But I'm wondering why you think that such um, vehement criticism has come about. Um, well, I think um, if you take, uh, for example, cigarette smoking, and the hostility that that evoked and the people were in denial until it was really very well established. I think if you have a lot of people having fun and other people making money out of them, you know, <laughs> that's, a, that's a perfect situation. Um, what you don't want is someone coming along and spoiling the party. And I think, there's, uh, you know, if, if I was in the video game industry, I'd, I'd feel similarly. You know, I'd, I'd be very defensive and I'd, I'd, you know, be fighting every inch if someone was opposing how I was making a lot of money, that would obviously be an issue. And I think the commercial factor should not be discounted, incidentally, in this. Um, I think also, because it's something people enjoy doing and they like to do, spending a lot of time on the internet, it's a very easy life in many ways. It's not challenging. Um, there's immediate satisfaction and gratification. Uh, because of all this, um, again, one is hostile to people pointing out the bad things. It's a bit like we all like eating a lot, and we don't really like people reminding us um, the negative effects of <laughs> piling on the calories or, and so on. So, uh, so I think there is a natural tendency in people anyway, and especially as if money's behind it, um, that uh, if something seems to be enjoyable um, and lucrative, then clearly you're going to be hostile about people saying there's reservations. Um, yeah, then again, um, I think any new idea, and not that this is a particularly hugely controversial idea, but any new idea, very healthy, does a, you know, get, gets challenged as it should do. You know, I would hate people just to roll over and say, yeah, you know what, you're right. You know, there's something wrong about that. I think if, if it's something that people haven't said before, then it deserves to be held up and um, matched against the checks and balances of scientific method. And what saddens me is when despite that, people are still in denial. <laughs> that's, that's what gets me. I mean, I, I don't mind at all having um, sensible debates, you know, and um, looking at what we know and what we don't know and what we want. Um, the other issue, I think, is that people often confuse um, what they don't want with what they want and what has been shown. And, and I think that one of the most important issues to establish is what do we want out of life? What do we want for the next generations? Because that will colour whether or not we think these things are good or bad. And what I've tried to do, despite my detractors, is shy away from value judgments and say this is good and this is bad because that will vary from person to person how you judge things. But I think important in the debate is to ask what do we want? You know, what do you want society to look like? Because according to that, that will determine whether things are acceptable or not. So let's just go back now and, um, and unpack what you've written about, particularly in mind change, about the impact of technologies and digital technologies on the human brain. Um, just in a nutshell, what is the neurological, neuroscientific impact of these technologies on brain development? 
Yeah, um, that's a very big uh, question to answer in a simple simple sentence. Um, I think in the first thing is that in a way the jury is still out because if you compare the so-called digital immigrants as people born in the last century with the millennials now, um, then clearly they're only about 15 years old at the moment or 16 years old. Um, Facebook's only been going for about 10 years. So in terms of the impact on a generation that knows nothing else, um, we don't know yet how they're going to perform in the workforce. We don't know what kind of family members they're going to be. They're going to be good parents or not, how they're going to bring up their kids. We don't know those things yet because they're only they're still underage. They're still under 18, most of them. So um, in terms of a broad brush overview, one can speculate, but obviously we'll have to see in 10 years' time what everyone looks like. You know? um, that said, I think we ought to start thinking about it now because it'll be too late possibly in 10 years' time if we have a load of dysfunctional people and we don't like the way society is. It will be too late then to cry foul. You know? So we need now to anticipate the options that might be there and also think about what we'd like to do about it and what kind of society we want. And uh, that's why I think it's very important that we should start driving change rather than just sleepwalking into it. But um, all that said, I think um, the impact is clear. Um, kids are spending, what, up to 18 hours a day if you disaggregate multitasking. There was a thing in the paper, even today I heard on the news, of the, um, this is alarming, one in four girls between the ages of 16 and 24 are self-harming. Now, obviously, I'm not going to say that's due to social media, obviously, but there is an eerie correlation with um, problems in um, psychiatric disorders, especially among adolescent girls, um, which has been happening over the last 10 years and the rise of social media over the last 10 years. So I, I, I want to stress again, I'm not saying, please don't say that I say, <laughs> if you, if you, you're going to have a 25% of self-harming, obviously not. But on the other hand, these are symptoms, I think, of the world in which we're living which is dominated so heavily by digital media that we cannot exclude that as a factor. And I think that that's something we you know, need to think about how people see themselves. Um, the other thing that saddens me is the success of Pokemon Go, for example. Um, whilst I can see it might be appealing to five-year-olds, I can't see why anyone uh, who's anywhere near an adult would want to do this, you know, spend their time. So, um, again, you know, it's, it's almost like a retarded childhood, you know, where you just stay like Peter Pan, in some little infantilized world of goodies and baddies, a literal world of living in the moment. You know, it's not a world where you reflect on the past or the present or the future or where you're going or, um, you know, abstract values and all the exciting things that in previous generations culture has, has given us. Yeah. Instead, now you're just living in a little goody and baddie world of, as though one was five years old. And, and I do find that a concern for me personally. I, I, I don't really want to grow old in a society run by people who play Pokemon Go. So going on from that, and just as by way of advice for anyone that wants to avoid any of these negative impacts of digital technology, how would you counsel somebody to live well in this digitized and hyper-connected age? Yeah, sure. Um, I, well, I think there's three elements of the old life that we're in danger of losing, that we need to hang on to. And I think that, obviously, the amount people use digital technology will depend on their work, play, what they do, what their lifestyle is, the culture they're in, the age they are. Yeah, I mean, obviously, that will vary a lot. But I think there's three crucial elements that mustn't be neglected, irrespective of your age and generation and so on. Um, the first is eating together with your friends and family. Now, whilst that might not be feasible three times a day, every, every day, as it was in the old days, 
I think that making an effort to put off all digital devices and sit around a table with your family and friends and eat and talk together is really important. And when you think about it, if someone takes someone out on a date, the most typical thing they will do is go out for a meal. You know, um, the very word companion is with bread, a sharing of bread. And um, you know, every civilization since we've known human beings have ritualized eating. You know, it's not a question of just bunging in calories. It's actually an important ritual in terms of human bonding and relationships. So I think to lose that, to just eat in front of your keyboard, um, is very sad. Yeah, and then, so there's that element. The second um, is getting outside and burning up the calories. And again, there's a danger now with increasing obesity um, and uh, everything automated that one doesn't have to do that like one did in the past. But um, I personally play squash, and I just know that even if I'm feeling grotty beforehand, I'll always feel better afterwards. Not 100%, but always better than I did if I started, yeah? Because um, you get the endorphins again, and you get a feeling then that you're across problems. It's not necessarily that you solve them, but you feel on top of them, yeah? Um, and, of course, it's obvious that, um, given the obesity crisis, that this is something that's important to do. I think it's also important to get out into fresh air and, you know, have all five senses stimulated as well. So um, that's the second thing. And the third thing is reading, reading books um, and reading to children. And the reason I specifically say reading is because a story conjures up in your mind and in a world that isn't there literally in front of the screen. So it rehearses for you imagination and long attention spans. And I think we're in danger of losing those things. Um, so imagination where you're driving the narrative, you can have this shadowy feeling of the characters. I think that's really, really important. And it's something that as we grow as we're children, as we get older, we learn to do that as we progress from you know comics to picture books to then books without any... Um, any pictures in um, and then we say the book is better than the film and because it is so powerful in your own mind you know and I think that as well so reading eating and exercising are the three things that we I think however in love we are with the digital world we mustn't lose sight of see the sight of their importance so there are some people that we've had on the show who have said that um, basically being online and using these digital technologies enables us to develop other kinds of intelligences that are different to the deep and focused type of intelligence you were talking about. For example, collaboration. And I'm just wondering what your response would be to yeah, an opinion like that. Well, I think certainly um, video gaming, for example, there's some ideas that this actually fosters raised IQ, you know, that you're better at IQ tests. And I think that might well be the case because you're rehearsing. You're only good at what you rehearse. And if you're rehearsing mental agility and you're exercising you know, pattern recognition and finding answers, and that's what you're doing in video games very quickly, you're inputting and then outputting, I can see that's the case. But then we mustn't confuse information with knowledge. And just because you can process information efficiently and come up with the right answer doesn't mean to say you understand it doesn't mean to say um, you can have insights into things. So whilst on the one hand it might make you a good second-hand computer or a second-rate computer, you are doing what computers do when you do this, you know? Um, whereas I think it's much better to try and foster skills that only humans have, like insight and intuition and creativity and imagination, um, and leave the computers to do the fast, quick answers. So by doing things where your input and output is just very fast without any middle bit, 
I think that um, that's not necessarily that brilliant. As for fostering communication, of course, you know, in fact, it's the World Wide Web and you can talk to people across time zones and space. Of course, that's good. But I think, um, again, nothing beats sitting in a room and brains, both in work and in pleasure, brainstorming with someone, discussing with someone in a room where you can see them face to face, where um, you can actually look at the body language. And I do enough teleconferences to know how awful they are when you can't see someone's face, you know, and you don't, and people interrupt and you don't know if someone else has gone to sleep or if they're typing on the side. <laughs> so, so um, you know, that's far from satisfactory, as as are indeed um, communication through the internet or through texting. You know, so whilst what you gain is breadth, but you lose depth, I think probably. You know, you you gain the ability to reach out very quickly and efficiently globally. But what you lose is actually a quality of communication and that it can't be the same as face-to-face debates. Great. Um, One of the um, key metrics for success for any um, digital service or piece of hardware is, um, is engagement. The amount of time that someone actually uses that piece of technology. So to a large extent, technology, the success of a technology is judged by how often people use it. Now, as a neuroscientist, I'm wondering how you think technology companies should measure their success. Yeah, um, that's a very interesting one. Um, I mean, for me, the metrics of success, not for digital tools, but for a person, is how individual or original their output is. You know, so if you take someone like Einstein or Mozart, um, you know, Shakespeare, they, they didn't necessarily have brilliant memories. They weren't necessarily quick at doing tasks. I don't think they probably had high IQs. But gosh, you know, we really uh, um, pay tribute to their brain power and, and to what they've done. Yeah. So for me, um, it's actually putting a premium on originality of thought and insight. Yeah? Now, how you measure that, of course, um, is, I suppose, in the workplace and how people come up with novel solutions to things. Um, in terms of speed, I don't think that's relevant in the slightest, but um, it's more... Yeah, I think it's how you join up the dots, you know, and can you join up the dots in a way no one else has done. Now, how you'd measure that, I think, shows the difficulty because that shows how hard it is to use a simple computational, you know, guide, whereas you'd normally use latency or speed or accuracy. And I don't think those things will necessarily give you what you want. Well, unfortunately, we've come to the end of the interview, Susan. Um, Where can people find out more about you and your work? Okay, so I have a website, susangreenfield.com. And uh, there's a section there for people um, to ask me questions, and I always reply, even if it's a very short answer. I always, I promise, I reply to any any query that people have. Great. Well, thank you so much, Susan, for spending time with us here on Digital Mindfulness. My pleasure, Lawrence. All the best. Take care.